0: All right, welcome to Episode 89 of seize the moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Christopher Mark Rose. He's an author and owner of the blog curiousful. He works at the Johns Hopkins University's Applied Physics Lab and is a member of the Baltimore Science Fiction Society. He writes mainly about speculative fiction and wrote a story in the book uh, philosophy through science fiction stories titled God on a bad night. Welcome, Christopher.
1: Thank you very much, glad to be here.
2: Thank you so much for coming on. And then so to just kind of get the the ball rolling and the conversation started, I guess my first sort of general question would be what sort of role can science fiction have in philosophy and how can it be important to that field?
1: Mm. Well, I think um, both philosophy and science fiction are um, engines for asking questions and and trying to um, create kind of um, thought experiments for, for to, to to refine answers. So, um, in that sense, they have a sort of a, a common mechanism, a common behavior. Um, I feel like um, you know the 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 secret um, the secret underlined theme of the book is that ninety nine percent of people get their philosophy um, from fiction, and particularly from science fiction. So, um, you know, I, I didn't write the story with that in mind um that the backstory of, of my appearing in this work is um, I'm not sure how much of this I, I'm supposed to say, but um, you know, they invited um, several really accomplished science fiction writers to contribute stories mm-hmm. and uh, one of them dropped out um, right. <laughs> And so um, my story and, and one other story um, that the editors um, read they were really happy with and so, Um, They actually went back to the editor and say, Hey, we'd like to include two stories instead of where this one was. And so that really felt great to me. Um, So uh, I had not, I had not had any idea. Um, I had seen a, seen a a comment from one of the editors saying, Oh, we really need somebody to fill a slot in this, this, um, this book. And I didn't know what to submit. Um, I had several stories in sort of a uh, various, stages of disrepair or sort of, you know, in the shop. Um, And uh, a friend of mine said, why don't you send your God story? I'm like, oh, my God story. Right. Okay. (laughs) And I'm so grateful to him. Uh, I would have, it wouldn't, I don't know why, but it would have never occurred to me otherwise. Um, I think because the story sort of ends on what a lot of people perceive as a down note. um, It wasn't the easiest story to, um, to sell. So
0: Why did you feel uh, compelled to write that particular story?
1: So um, there are two different major components of the story. And I I think, you know, one of the things I've had success with in writing was sort of slamming two entirely um, different things together and seeing what comes out of them. Um, And the first was this excellent book I found um, called um, a big bang in a little room. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, it's nonfiction, and, and it's about um, cosmologists and physicists um, trying to um, trying to arrive at at a, at a formula or a plan for creating baby universes from our own universe, or at least trying to prove that that's a possibility. And um, you know, a lot of the specifics of of what goes on in the story. And I, I feel like we should spoil the story so that your listeners uh, yeah go for oh, it
0: don't have to wonder.
1: Um, so yeah. this, the story is basically uh, uh, told from the perspective of, uh, of a physicist who's on a, um, an artificial satellite in, in the asteroid belt. And uh, it's called the big wheel and it's basically a gigantic physics experiment, um, like something like a large Hadron Collider, but like orders of magnitude bigger. And he's out there and um, he had brought his wife and daughter and subsequent to that, um, she divorced him and left with the daughter. And so um, the story opens with uh, a moment where um, the daughter comes to visit him and she says, oh, daddy, you know, my my mom and her new boyfriend have ponies. And so I'm not coming to visit you anymore. I'm just going to go live with them because they have ponies. Um, and the story follows through his, his difficult time trying to um, I mean, he passes through all the stages, right? First bargaining, and, and some anger, and a lot of depression, and and finally, um, where we might wish he came to some some peaceful resolution to that. Instead, he 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 basically um, hijacks the the, little, the big wheel, and and performs an experiment without uh, without any permission from the higher ups um, on the satellite, and. It appears he creates, you know, a new baby universe. Um, And the descriptions of all that are much in line with what's, what's describing the book. Um, I'm not a physicist by trade. I'm an electrical engineer, Um, but I have some interest in those things. And the book was just an incredible find for me. You know how you look down into a a remainder bin someday and think, what is, what is this book doing here? You know, this is just what I was looking for. This book wasn't remainder. Don't, don't get me wrong, but it was just uh, when I found it, I, I felt like, you know, the moon had fallen on me or something. Um, so so that was one aspect of the story. And the other aspect of the story is I really witnessed a conversation between a, a divorced father, apparently, and a daughter, very much like this pony moment in the story. I was, I was eavesdropping and I don't know if other writers do this, but I, I think... Either I'm a writer because I'm an inveterate eavesdropper or or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, this happened years before I ever started writing. And that one, you know, incidents just stuck with me for the whole time. So I felt like, you know, if it was so memorable to me, um, I should probably work it out in a, in a story and it might stick with other people too. So, um, you know, the, the details of the horses and, the the rocket trip and all that are, are sort of you know pasted in place to make that event otherwise as uh, uh it to have as much fidelity as possible to the emotion I felt as an as an innocent bystander listening to that parent-child discussion and it just it just my heart turned over when I heard it I don't know
0: <laughs> um, mine too in a way I found Arlo uh, the main character to be uh, very relatable Uh, When I um, when he was speaking with his with his daughter, I I, and she was telling him about um, her experiences with uh, her mother and uh, her uh, stepfather, uh, Roger, and kind of how great it is to be with them, explaining this to her father, who uh, misses her, is just happy to see her, but also has these is not able to connect in the way that he would like to with her or to be this sort of, um, to be as, to, to give experiences in the same way that Roger and her mother are giving her, um, uh-huh. and to, to sort of see that disconnect and to see like what he really wants to connect with her, but he's just unable to say the things he wants to say or to, uh, relate certain emotions to her. And also because she's so young, it's like, it's almost as if like she can't read his, um, I suppose, like, it, it's almost, you would think it's obvious to us, right? Oh, it's so great with these other people. Oh, you know, hi, dad, it's good to see you. But I love where I am now. I think I'm going yeah. to live with them now instead of with you. And and that's generally what she's saying. But she's not reading into the fact that this is so painful for him. And he has to sort of keep a straight face um, and just kind of go through the motions. Yeah. And um, in this way, that, that really humanized him. And I don't know. I find that's so important for a character because uh, um, for instance, like the things that uh, help me to retain uh, memory about a story, some, it has to be something that sort of um, uh, gets to me emotionally. And I, I feel like when I talk about this story, it's very easy to uh, retain everything that I write about it and sort of be able to explain to somebody what's going on. And I, I mean, I, I try to train myself to do things like that anyway, but Uh, I felt with your story, it's very easy because the character is so relatable and so human.
2: All right. Yeah. And, you know, so speaking of the human aspect of him, right, but there was also kind of a, a sort of dehuman aspect of him. So like, there was this part of him, right, that seemed to be a, to have been pretty disassociated from just reality on the whole. Um, so even though I guess one can kind of argue that their version of reality seemed to have been kind of like the matrix where sort of everything was sort of uh, kind of created and manufactured, right? And as opposed to his reality, which seemed a little more dark and gloomy, right? Hmm. But what's also interesting is that it also kind of seemed to reverse as well, where they were actually living And they were enjoying it and sort of, uh, kind of like tasting the fruits of it. Whereas him on the other end was sort of more contemplative and more sort of stuck in thought. And so I guess I would wonder, Chris, from your kind of perspective, right? If let's say, um, do we feel like, or do you feel like there's sort of some people who at the expense of intimacy and at the expense of, uh, let say if there's a sort of fear of bonding with people, right, and the fear of being loved, accepted, do you feel like sometimes they do like in sort of Freudian terms, they sublimate, and they kind of put all of their energy into sort of more creative tasks, or in this case, like building a universe or trying to, uh, or do they put them into, or do they put their kind of energies into more... Um, what would you call them? A sort of, uh, a sort of more educational or academic test where they kind of get stuck in the world of like thinking, right, in the world of thought, where for them it's like on the one hand you have like the daughter and the mom and even the stepdad who are actually living life in some sense, and then you have this other guy who doesn't really seem like he was ever fully alive.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, well, I, I think, I think it's unfair to generalize. You know, a, a lot of, you know, people doing really um, sort of. Um, Thought-centric tasks, or you know, really intellectual, intellectually engaged, um, you know, they can, they can. I've seen people who sort of span the whole spectrum there. So, um, but I think you know, it's it's a dangerous, uh, it's it's a dangerous uh, trope to fall into to assume that everybody who's you know making progress in in some intellectual endeavor is somehow isolated from. Uh, from intimacy from their from their familial life um, you know there's a big thing uh, just recently in the news about Einstein's first wife Maleva um, Merrick mm-hmm. um, and it's not clear it I mean, the record will never be entirely clear um, but you know she was there for that this sort of sort of year of light that he had and we produced these four like Really foundational papers in physics. Like if you if you look at their interpersonal correspondence, you know she was right there with them. She was participating, and the the original copies of those four papers are gone. There's this huge like bibliographic record of, of his life. Eighty thousand different you know pieces of paper that he wrote on. You know the whole museum in in um, Israel somewhere. But the like the, the papers are gone. It's almost like a murder mystery, um, right. and we'll never know. So, I, I just feel like that's that's one of several examples where, um, you know, from the outside you can't tell. Um, but I think a best guess is, you know, that the relationship was really helpful for his productivity. And you what do you
2: what do you suppose went wrong with Arlo? Like, how come sort of his marriage disintegrated? Whereas for him, it was kind of, I think, what I'm describing, where uh, he was kind of so stuck in his work that he didn't really kind of, uh, I guess, focus on or see the needs of his wife and his kid, at least initially.
1: Oh, I, I'm not sure of of the wisdom of his marriage to begin with. It seems like, uh, it's, it seem, it seems like his, his wife is interested in different things, maybe. Um, but also, it just seems like a, a pretty, you know, like a, a pretty bad choice for him to drag his family out there, um, to, to this asteroid that's, you know, I, I, went to some lengths to, to make it feel sort of industrial and, um, inhospitable, especially to kids. Um, and, you know, the story is up front that there aren't any other kids there, you know, he has to go out and buy, you know, robots to, be, to be relatable to kids. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, this is not to um, this is not to absolve him from blame for the direction his relationship with his wife took. I mean, he's he's definitely you know on the hook to be one half of any relationship he enters into, um, and I, it's clear he failed at that. And you know, if you can extrapolate from how he relates to you know basically losing custody of his daughter. Um, you could see that for a long time, he was sublimating his feelings, you know, probably through the relationship with his wife too, like not being expressive, not sharing everything that was on his mind, you know, and all through the story, I'm trying to construct these sort of, um, uh, these body centered reactions, you know, um, that his conscious mind um, isn't part of, it's out of the, out of the loop, basically, you know, he's having stomach pains, he's having headaches, he's, he runs into something, you know, he almost tosses his cookies, like, you know, all of these are signs that he should be reading. And it's only at the, like the very last minute in the story when we actually see him sort of uh, like, you know, the, the deep emotional um, pain he's having, like sort of surface through his consciousness, you know, he actually cries, you know, um i worried if that part of the story was a little bit too trite but i mean that's that's the whole arc right there is you know even from from the beginning of the framing of the story or from way before the beginning of the framing of the story he's not being honest with himself he's not letting himself feel the things he should be feeling in his interpersonal relationships
0: you know it was interesting when he um he went to a friend of his uh, party uh I believe it was uh Sebastian and uh, his wife and then he ended up meeting uh, a woman there uh uh-huh. Marlene. Marlene. <laughs> yeah, and I thought it was uh, it was interesting how upon only just meeting her he he related a lot of information about how he was feeling um in terms of uh like i was surprised how open he was being with somebody he had only just met which i thought was uh strange and it was also interesting that marlene was willing to sort of entertain um the sort of um what would you say like a diet the diatribe that he was sort of going through um but yeah, he was being a, a completely vulnerable. First, she's asking like, "Are, are you married?" Right? He said like, no. Tosses his ring into the uh, fruit punch, uh, which I thought was interesting. Um, and I thought it was gonna go somewhere uh, with her. And then he starts um, saying that he's he's not with his daughter. He starts to sort of um, there's a sort of under the sort of dark or maybe um, like a sort of a depressed undertone um, in his explanation to her of what he's currently feeling and going through. Okay. Um, But it it was interesting uh, that so right so he couldn't take uh, fully letting out his feelings so he had to sort of get out of the situation and and get away from there. But um, I I thought that was interesting that it looked like the almost like as if um, he was starting to crack in a way, as if he he almost had some sort of um, a breakthrough but wasn't quite there. But he was nearing like being able to. Uh, connect to someone again. Um, so, yeah, that's an interesting sort of dynamic at play. And then he ran away. He ran away.
1: Yeah, <laughs> he ran away,
0: exactly. He ran yeah. as far as he could, right? Any, any
2: yeah. sort of level of intimacy that sort of, uh, I guess, protrudes into his life, he's out.
0: But it's interesting that he went as far as he did because you, you would think it's not a, a, a social norm with somebody you only just met to, say, give as much information as he was about his life. Right. So it almost felt as if like he was on the precipice of something, uh, but couldn't quite get there. And then because of the rebound of not getting there, he became more entrenched sort of in his uh, depression, took to the peach snobs, right? And and sort of... uh,
2: (laughs) And and so, Chris, by any chance, did this story remind you of a sort of Faustian bargain where like uh, instead of sort of love and intimacy and kind of life, as you know, most people would think of it, he was kind of granted... um, let's say the sort of secrets of the universe, right? And in this case, in creating a
1: new universe. Oh, well, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it certainly, it certainly scans. Um, you know, I, I wrote the story and it, it sat around for a long time. And then it occurred to me that there's this sort of parallel between, um, you know, the father not really understanding their child or being able to express, you know, or underst- to have communication. And then the creator sort of being isolated um, from their creation. And there's this actual mechanism, uh, this this Hawking radiation um, Mm -hmm. that I I honestly, don't understand the physics of it, but it it seems very clear from what I've read everywhere that once you create one of these baby universes, it's it's basically gone from your ability to to communicate with it or sense it um, in any straightforward way. Um, There is a little, um, mentioned in, in, in the, the Big Bang book about um, scientists trying to look for messages in the cosmic background radiation which which might be one way um, to divine whether our, our, our universe is, is sort of natural like you know or, or the product of some other intelligence um, so there are actually people doing this I don't know uh, what and the your, likely yeah what,
2: what are your thoughts on simulation theory
1: yeah um, well, boy, there's—I see that in two different directions. Like on the one hand, um, sort of the, the the whole idea about the matrix and you know our existence, our universe being somehow a giant simulation. Um, that's also broached in the book. I'm telling you, that book is just a, a wellspring. Um, they talk about um, they talk about looking for something, some, something like a glitch or an upgrade, like all the different mechanisms. That you think of with your home computer, they use as analogies for some kind of an indication that we might not be, we might be in some kind of a simulation. Um, My thoughts are that it it doesn't really matter, Um, you know, that whether we're in a simulation or not, probably in our lifetime we won't have uh, we we won't have evidence that that's unassailable. so I think it, it's fun to imagine. Um, I think a bigger ethical question is: Should we create our own simulations? Right. Mm-hmm. And what 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 responsibility do we bear to them if they produce intelligence? Yeah.
0: Um, right. I, I noticed that um, in the notes um, after your story, there's. Um, there's a, a bit in there about having um, listened to a lecture uh, by uh, some uh, physicists, right, and how they discussed the possibilities of what could be uh, done by creating uh, another uh, universe and sort of the um, uh, theoretical implication. No, well, actually. Sorry, what I want to say is they didn't get into the philosophical compl- uh, implications of what it would be to actually create another universe. Right. And um, that was, per- as I understood it, perplexing to you why s- scientists weren't getting into the the ethics of, of, you know, if you did have the power to create another universe. What sort of, um, like, what would you do it? Uh, what sort of responsibility would you bear? And then I think your story is is important uh, because, I mean, the person who ended up creating another universe, they didn't have any of that in mind. They were just having a bad night, right? Uh, hence God on a bad night, right? And I, I thought that was very fascinating.
1: Mm-hmm. So um, in in the the Big Bang book, um, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, circling back to this issue that, that all of the all of the physicists and cosmologists that she's interviewing um, seem sort of gleefully like separated from the the moral or the ethical implications of what they're doing, mm-hmm. um, and that it's, I, I couldn't parse that for a long time. Finally, I, I I think what I understand is that a lot of them um, are are believers in this sort of many worlds interpretation of of, of quantum theory. Mm -hmm. So in that like every time you make a decision you're really creating two separate like coexistent parallel universes. Um, I I feel like there's a lot of holes in that theory and I don't understand um, what good it does in terms of what it makes easier in terms of the rest of of, uh, cosmology or physics. But it it seems to give them like a blanket absolution from considering um, the ethical issues
2: Oh, and by the way, just FYI, um, have you heard of the double slit experiment?
1: Yes, yes, yeah. I
2: have. So that's actually it. So um, the, my understanding of it, obviously, I'm not a physicist, so please, you know, don't take anything that I say too seriously. So oh. but from my uh, my understanding of the, from the double slit experiment is essentially the initially the first interpretation, the Copenhagen interpretation was that it was the measuring device that was causing, you know, um, so do you remember it?
0: Right, a uh, particle part- can be, uh, it, it, sorry, uh, a wave could be. Sorry, it could be either a wave or, or a, particle,
2: a particle, right? Depending yeah. on who's, if, it, if it's being measured, right? So the Copenhagen right. interpretation was essentially that it was being measured and the measuring device was the one that was actually affecting it. And then eventually it turned into somewhere down the line, the observer effect with, um, I think his name was Eugene Wigner. So there were plenty of like materialist physicists who hated that interpretation. And they said, no, that doesn't make any sense. The observer is not affecting any of that. So they came up with the multiverse interpretation. It's also based on theoretical physics, which I will never understand. But the point is that, so th- it was their answer to the kind of measurement problem. So that was it. Their understanding was it's not actually the measurement device that's causing it to happen. It's actually just a random, it's pretty much random. It's a product of random luck where the idea is, well, in one universe, it's a particle. In the other universe, it's a wave. And that's just how it is, right? It doesn't actually matter what the observer is doing. It's just called kind of like a, a hodgepodge of randomness.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I can subscribe to that. I feel like that's absolves you from any more... Uh, investigation of you know what's a, what's what's a primary effect like you know there are hundreds maybe thousands of different like variations on that experiment you know it's it's primal so um, I feel like you know it, it's you know the reason that it is is because there are these different interpretations that people can sort of disagree about if it were uh, if it we're straightforward we'd be done with it by now um, right. Yeah. So... Oh,
2: yeah. Right, right, right. No, I just remembered. So no, I was actually a little bit wrong and uh, often my, uh, my understanding. So it was that, you know, like every single time that there is no measuring device and all of the particles are spread out and kind of on the backboard. So the sure. idea there was that there, it's actually not a wave; that they're actually all particles and all of the particles are actualized in the different universe. So it's not that it's a wave of probability In reality, it's something along the lines of like, it gets actualized in different universes.
0: Right. And yeah. as far as interpretations go, I remember the the first one of the first interpretations was, oh well, if you need the uh, presence of of a like the presence of an observer right. changes the whether it's a particle or a wave or the quality. You right. know, a lot of people misinterpreted that to say that th- they used it in um, uh, sort of sort of as a uh, a way to explain um, sort of New Agey sort of ideas. Yeah. They would say the oh, consciousness effect. Uh, yeah like how, like sort of that law of attraction thing, like the secret, right? Um, which there may be. So as far as uh, manifesting something with a thought and a frequency matching another frequency and all of that and using that experiment as, as uh, a way to sort of support that, I don't agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, it could be possible, so I'll keep an open mind. Fair enough, but probably not the only application maybe, of, uh, the law of attraction that sort of may be practical is, I suppose, if you're looking through a filter of of a positive thought, you'll look for positive, like proof of things that will support that thought. Mm -hmm. And then that may then alter, you know, what path you may be on, uh, and affect it in that sense. Right. And that's the slight sort of, um, effect you could sort of, have on uh, your uh, reality, so to speak. Uh, that's about it, yeah. as far as that goes, but sorry. I, I no, kind it's of
2: okay. it's right. So, and it. Chris, I guess for you, right? What would you say is like the main issue or your main issue with the many worlds interpretation?
1: Um, so I can't speak to the physics of it at all, but I feel like it's a, it's a, it's a crutch from con- addressing the moral and ethical implications of whatever you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a justification for doing whatever you want it to do anyway.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I think you know this question about creating intelligence is um, it, it is the hundredth anniversary of the cre- the creation or the naming of a, of a robot by the way, um, this year. So it's been a long time coming. you know, we've had this idea sort of in our collective subconscious, um, you know it, it's in our popular culture it's in our literature for a long long time and I feel like you know morally and ethically we're totally unprepared for when we create artificial intelligences how how we're going to relate to them how we're gonna how we're gonna see our obligations and responsibilities to them um, it's it's coming faster than we think um, you know you can see the military industrial complex um, just you know, in a lather, waiting to to have you know fully autonomous weapons. Um, we have an obligation, and particularly philosophers, ethicists, of of addressing this head on, and and not just letting it be some some game in academic circles, but to popularize a real you know hard hard as nails discussion about what our obligations are. So.
0: Yeah, um, I think it's Ray Kurzweil who thinks that in 2048, we'll have a technological uh, singularity. And at that point, we'll have created a generally intelligent AI. Uh, Some people think sooner, some people think later. Uh, But uh, you're right. Yeah, it may not be as far away as we think. And yeah, how how would we deal with it? And also, if we do end up with that uh, generally intelligent AI, will it be a benevolent one? Will it be uh, one that maybe sees us as a a blight or a parasite or something like that on the planet, depending on how it optimizes for what's the net good or uh, the net good or the net bad that humans sort of provide? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say uh, sure, maybe yeah. maybe it doesn't think in those terms. Like what whatever I just expressed is so limited that it takes in millions of other variables and then aggregates those variables. And then the emergent is something that I cannot even right. fathom one tenth of, I, I don't know, but it's processing power and speed will be insane when, and if we do have a, uh, and uh, like a legitimate, generally intelligent AI.
2: But by the way, and go, just going back to the story, right? So if Arlo can get kind of sucked into, I don't know, the world of, let's say, you know, kind of hypothetical and theoretical physics and potentially creating new universes and whatnot. And sort of, you know, disassociate from his family. What's going to happen when we have AIs all over the place? Do you even think that people have kind of have the same level of friendships and relationships that they did before? You don't.
0: You never, you never know. I wonder, I wonder, uh, because if, if we do actually get to that point when we do, so what, sorry, when you're saying AI on, on what level, like, do you mean like your phone will? Oh, good question. Be like robots.
2: A, I mean like robots.
0: And what, and just be able to have a conversation yeah. with you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now question, uh, it's programmed to have certain programmed responses to you and read you a certain way. And or well, what if it's programmed in a way to
2: make a decision, right? So it's like it could choose from particular responses.
0: If if it's if it's going to be that idea of a generally intelligent AI, mm-hmm. then I think it'll once it exists, it'll optimize for a whole bunch of experience uh, for uh, animals, humans, and for technology, and also the rate at which it will produce more. Uh, inventions and no, probably Nobel prize winning discovery or what we would deem Nobel prize winning discoveries. It would, everything would start coming out way, 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 way faster. Right. So I I think it would, if it's a benevolent version of this, it would optimize for our experience and see every single thing that we see as an issue currently in discourse. Right. So maybe we would have good,
2: interactions. Yeah. Uh, Hopefully not at the expense of like real interactions.
0: So uh, Christopher, I was I was joking about this, uh, I think yesterday with my friends, if we did actually have a generally intelligent uh, AI. So I have my phone here. Mm -hmm. I wonder if, if let's say we were having a podcast and it hears us discussing whatever we're discussing, if it would start to chime in, (laughs) like how a person would chime (laughs) in. Uh Um, And that would be interesting, too, Mm -hmm. if it just became another participant in conversation. Maybe also it would fact check you.
1: (laughs) <laughs> that like, would actually be pretty whatever. You know that wouldn't be a bad thing, I don't think. That would be really useful. That would be great. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: I think, um, in general, my expectation is when, when general um, AI comes out, first of all, we might not even realize it for a long time. Mm-hmm. And second of all, we will probably be the least of its interests. Um, you know, just like we're busy making robots and making AI now, it's gonna make something else down the line, you know? Um, it, and our, our fingerprints won't be on that. That'll be an entirely different thing altogether. So it's easy for me to imagine the whole process sort of running away from us um, if we're not careful. Um, so I, I have a story out in this month's uh, Asimovs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Asimovs is, a, is this kind of a pulpy science fiction magazine. Um, I say that in the best possible way. <laughs> um, and, and, and it's about a, a robot that, that comes upon some amount of uh, general intelligence and, and some amount of sympathy or empathy for humans on its own. Um, and sort of in, in parallel with that story, there's, there's a set of author's notes that are going to go up on the Asimov website um, any day now. And they, they, this, this is my essay that talks about um, the literary record we're leaving behind us, uh, all of, all of the fiction we've written about robots, um, robots are going to read that at some point, mm-hmm. AI is going to read that. Um, I really don't think it, it shows us in the best light, you know, um, and particularly Asimov, um, sort of the premise of the story is, is that Asimov himself was kind of a bigot, um, mm-hmm. regarding human life and artificial life, um. I was surprised they published it, but I'm glad. Um,
2: yeah, and so just and going back to kind of the initial story, right? Do you what do you feel like? Why was Arlo so obsessed with creating a new universe? Why was that so important to him?
1: Um, <laughs> I think that's a good question. I'm not sure. I completely answered it before I started writing, but it's easy to imagine. Um, it's easy to imagine it being some kind of surrogate for confirming that the work he's doing is worthwhile in general. Mm-hmm. You know I mean, there's there's no, there's no bad guy character in the background that, that's his rival uh, in, in terms of physics. I had con- considered and then crossed out such a thing. Um, it's not a, It's not a sort of a good versus evil relationship. I when I was writing his character, um, I was really trying to make a character who is nuanced. Mm -hmm. um i feel like i mean you can plow through a lot of science fiction and find characters that are very much like hashtag innocent hashtag villain hashtag you know retribution um i really want to create characters that are um that have gray areas that are believable um relatable um so another backstory of this story is i i had been watching a Uh, a documentary with with my sister um, Mm -hmm. quite a long time ago now it was a documentary about the life of um, oh see I'm gonna I'm gonna blow the name now Um, Frank Lloyd Wright Um, Mm -hmm. and you know it shows him you know doing his thing making great architecture changing our perception of of what our living spaces should be and then you know halfway through it surprise he leaves his wife and his six children and runs off with a the nanny
0: mm-hmm.
1: they go to new mexico or, or arizona and build Taliesin in west and then my sister saw that and she said he is going to burn in hell mm-hmm. and i'm like how can you say that like he changed you know he changed everything in American architecture. You know, he, he changed our perception of beauty and how we spend our time and all these things. Doesn't that count for something? And, and um, we never we never came to an agreement upon that. And, but I think, you know, Arlo has this same sort of, um, this same sort of micro macro thing going on. Like in the foreground and a micro scale, he's not being successful at, his, at being a good dad or being a good husband or, you know, who knows, even his relationship with his coworkers. Uh, but on a macro scale, he might've created something with, who knows, billions, trillions of living creatures, maybe intelligence, who knows, you know, what will exist further on, these sort of putative life forms in the new universe. Um, I kind of like put my thumb on the scale a little bit relative to, um, to Frank Lloyd Wright, because I, I had some sympathy for Arlo myself um, but there's really no, there's, there's no way to calculate um, if there is such a thing as, a, as a sort of an unbiased calculation of the value of somebody's life, um, there's no way to calculate how those kinds of creative acts relate to, um, you know, life around you, on the ground, in the house.
2: Right. and he was a sympathetic character because i remember there was a point in the book where uh essentially I think he said something along the lines of I- there was a th- yeah I think it was a thought where he thought there it was like a part of the backstory where the reason why he wasn't coming home was essentially because he was kind of tired of disappointing his wife so there's a bit of selflessness there it wasn't that well you know I'm just hanging out and I'm kind of working on my physics and creating a universe and I don't care about this person it really just seemed like he was running away he was running away from sadness from from her end from his end he seemed like more than anything he cared about her but he just didn't
1: know how to Deal with that, but I mean, those are his perceptions too. I think I have been surprised at how different readers have reacted to Arlo. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people don't think he's such a sympathetic character,
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: in spite of all the all the stuff that I put in there that I felt like could make him more understandable.
0: Um,
1: Right? Really, on ground level, he's kind of a a cipher. Like you know, he's obsessed with this gigantic. Um, collider thing and he's got data pouring into his house and it's 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 accumulating in all these like um, these 3D um, displays in the middle of his living room um, you know I, I think I think if if we were confronted with him I, I don't know what we'd make of him Um yeah.
0: From uh, other readers' reactions to Arlo, uh, h- how did they uh, feel about him? I mean, I, I guess maybe we're, I, I guess, yeah, we-, we like to try to understand um, the character, mm-hmm. right? And and, and also, that, yeah, that might be part of our own bias, actually, right? To try to understand them, see what their motivations are for what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Not everyone is, it's not all black and white. Not everyone's good or bad. Sure, that's our take. But yeah, what uh, what do other readers uh sort of feel about him?
1: Well, um, uh, I I I feel like I can't really um, I, it would be wrong for me to misrepresent things, but I mean my my perception is that the most relatable character in the story is the daughter. Mm. Uh, I mean, she wants what she wants, but of course, she's a daughter. She's she's six years old, and I really had to tinker a lot. Like a lot of people came back to me and said, you know, what she's saying here is too adult for somebody that age, or, you know, these two behaviors don't sound like the same age of care of of kid. Um, And I think, you know, once you're a parent and you've lived through the whole spectrum of it, you know, sometimes it can all get compressed in your own mind. Like, Oh, you know, I see pictures of my daughter now when she was three or four, and it's hard for me to remember that she's not the same character, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but but yeah, in general. So so here's the fact that I've come to grips with recently. Um, you know, the the majority of readers of fiction and buyers of fiction are female now, and have been for some time, and it's a big number. Um, so I think you have to factor that in a little bit. Um, everybody has a sort of an ideal reader, right? Like I'm writing this story and I'm imagining how so-and-so will react to it. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and it also, go ahead. But I think in, at least for science fiction writers and readers, you know, the scientist in the story is obviously the character you're gonna empathize with. Like, oh, I really hope they're successful at doing the science thing. Um, That didn't happen here. Um, maybe it maybe that's not the standard anymore.
2: Yeah, and I also think, just in my opinion, obviously, I mean, I can't know for sure, but in my opinion, I think a lot of if you do sort of uh, if you do find it hard to kind of empathize with Arlo, I think it's a little bit more personal there, um, and I can imagine how maybe let's say somebody who's reading the story and maybe their husband is a little bit more avoidant, and they're thinking like, oh, like you know, I've I've been in this position before, oh, wow. okay. yeah, so I've been in this position before, and it's you know, it's like it makes me feel like shit. But the thing is, it's like, um, so I try to view things from more of a clinical lens and from the lens, especially in this case. Of of attachment styles so it does seem like he has a what's called an avoidant attachment style where he finds it difficult to relate to people in particular people he loves and who obviously love him back so i mean it's definitely understandable obviously how his daughter and wife would be hurt by his behavior but that little snippet in the book where he talks about how how it's so difficult for him to kind of come home and feel like he's disappointing her it actually reminds me of this movie um have you guys ever seen the Clint eastwood movie the mule
0: no that's new right
2: uh, new ish i would say maybe two years ago so that that's exactly actually what happened in the story so he was obsessed so he was mm-hmm. like um he was like a gardener but he was like a, a sort of nation nationally wide uh kind of like famous gardener like he would the way he would create like uh just these bouquets of flowers was just extraordinary and then so his wife in the film ends up pretty much i think she gets cancer and she finally ends up dying and they have this moment where she's like i don't understand like why you did this to us she's like you literally abandoned your family and she's like i could never forgive you for that and then so he tells her he's like I wish you only understood and knew how hard it was for me to come home to disappoint you every single time. So for him with the avoidant attachment style, he was just running away from her. So look, obviously, we understand from the wife's perspective as a husband, I mean, you kind of have some responsibility, obviously, and you owe it to your family to be there. However, also from a clinical perspective, and when we're talking about attachment styles, it's not that easy to overcome. And so even if he were wrong, and by the way, that's what happened in the film, like, she's like, what are you talking about? She's like, we all loved you. You never disappointed any of us. But if in his mind, the belief is like, well, you know what, I'm coming home, and I'm constantly upsetting people. I'm constantly making them sad. You know, I don't want to do that. I don't want to you know, feel bad. And I don't want to make other people feel bad. But what's interesting is that in that sort of, uh, in that world of gardening or, you know, kind of setting up flowers. I don't even know what you would call it. Uh, He's like, yeah, I always, he's like, I felt like I was competent. He's like, I always got the recognition and sort of the rewards I was looking for. And here was this thing that I was really good at. And I got the kind of, you know, the, uh, the sort of feedback that I was looking for, whereas where I would come home, he's like, it was sort of, I felt kind of dead. I don't know if he said that, but something along those lines, he said that I just didn't feel like I was, you know, kind of living up to my responsibility. So one can definitely argue, look, as a sort of father and as a husband, you know, you you owe it to your family to kind of look into that and to, you know, get better or change or work with your family on that. Sure. But then also on the other hand, if he was genuinely genuinely or generally terrified and then really felt hopeless about changing a situation, just like it seemed like what happened with Arlo, you can easily understand why somebody would want to run away from that.
1: Hmm. Yeah. So, but I think um, the, the sort of confrontation with Marlene at the end of the story is his chance to sort of redeem himself. And he gets right to the edge of it and then he mops it and runs away. You know, I feel like um, if the jury was out before then, it's clear after that, you know, um, he's a flawed character. He's, you know, by design, a flawed character. Um, Yeah.
2: And then it seems like what he does more so than anything, when things get hard, he runs away. There's a sense of hopelessness there that it's like, I can't make this work, even if I try. And then buries himself in his work, obviously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. We, yeah. And then so philosophically speaking, right, what would you say are some of the sort of themes or the ideas that you would want your readers to take away?
1: Well, um I think you know, this 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 thread that we've been pulling on about what's your what's your relationship with or or what your responsibilities are to things you've created, whether they be Your own children, or an entire new universe, you know, is is a big, open, unanswered question that that we need to we need to work harder at. And maybe this is just my outlook as a parent, but I mean, it's sort of baked into the story. Yeah.
0: Um, Right. Right. Responsibility as as a theme, right? It's it's important to realize that um, you you almost you don't well. I may have to re-edit this as I say this, but it's fine. Um, I think it's important to be vigilant, right? Especially when you're in the process of of creation, especially when you, especially when making something like uh, of the nature of a hadron collider, something that could create these many universes that could spawn life. That you're responsible for creating. Both, uh, yeah, sure, uh, you have created life, uh, but you've also created a whole uh like uh, pain and suffering potentially right um and you're responsible for all these new lives and and, and all of that and it's um it, it's important not to uh do what he did right which is you know you get drunk on peach snobs you're having a horrible horrible <laughs> night and yeah and and pull the give, trigger pull the trigger and just create this new universe right um it's it's it arguably it's the same thing when when creating anything uh it's almost as if um, it's kind of like being, uh, in a way, half assed about it, right? Yeah. And then, uh, and, and it's important because what you put out there, it's once it's out there, it's out there for the to, the world to sort of um, uh, play with, or to judge, or to criticize, or to work with, and especially if you're, let's say, uh, an author or. Uh, I don't know um, okay or doing what we're doing right now like a podcast let's say Uh, let's say just hypothetically hypothetically i was incredibly depressed very low low energy low tone or something like that i wasn't giving it a hundred percent you know uh, or leon same thing and then and then you kind of uh, present that to an audience and they're kind of like, Oh, what am I listening to, mm-hmm. you know, and let's say you have this overarching goal, or you did where you want to uh, impact people in a sort of positive way or something like that, but you're not giving it your all you're not being vigilant, then the consequence of not trying to give your best every single time, it, it'll hurt that that overarching goal, which I'm sure Arlo had at one point and was very uh, uh congruent with like I'm sure there was one point in his I understand it's a fictional character but there's one point in his life where it, this was something near and dear to his heart something pa- that he was very passionate about otherwise he wouldn't have put up the years of study that he did and yeah. wouldn't have gone to the lengths that he did to learn what he learned right um so to yeah to lose sight of yourself it's it's important not to yeah
2: Yeah. And I would just, and I would also add to that, that going back to the responsibility factor, it's like, so again, going back to attachment styles, you kind of understand that obviously a person can be avoidant and afraid, obviously just afraid of making decisions. So the problem with Arthur was that he was very childlike in his decision-making. So it's not that he said, well, you know what? I'm afraid of taking care of this child, or I'm afraid of bonding with them. I'm afraid of maybe taking care of this universe and taking responsibility for it. Maybe I should stay away from it. He just said, no, no, no. I'm going to still make these things happen without the foresight Necessary, obviously, and then then when it came time to take responsibility for it, he's like, "Ooh, no, I don't really want that much to do with it." So I think if anything, that's probably what his wife was most upset about. It was probably like, "Dude, like you married me, you made this decision, so it's up to you now to figure out a way to make it work." Like maybe there's some part of her that understood, like, "Yes, I look, I get it. You have like these really, you know, sort of toxic beliefs, and you may not feel like you're up to the task." But then, why'd you do it? Why'd you get married? Why did we start a family? And in this other respect, why do you have? Why did you create a universe if you're not willing to take responsibility? for it right yeah hmm. yeah. yeah so I- yeah. And I think kind of people tend to struggle with that. And just by the way, from again, going back to the clinical perspective, you see clients a lot like that, who just, um, it's like, they're kind of one foot in one foot out. So it's like, they want to put themselves out there, which is obviously great. But then when they do, they don't want to take full responsibility for those choices, like mm-hmm. going into a relationship. It's like, uh, you know, you're like, well, I want a boyfriend or whatever. And then you're like, okay, this person is my boyfriend. And then things get kind of tough. And you still, you start avoiding. And then the other person's like, I don't understand. You seem to have wanted to have dated me. Now you You don't. So it kind of seems like Arlo was stuck in this childlike state where, on the one hand, he wants to be alive and he wants to make these big decisions, but on the other hand, he just doesn't
1: want to be responsible for them. Mm. He's sort of maybe an everyman in that regard. Like, I I feel like nothing would happen if we waited to be entirely informed of all the possibilities and responsibilities. Um, I mean, sometimes I think it's essential that you have to sort of take that creative leap, but at the same time you have to sort of back it up. So. Yeah. Yeah. What do you
2: think would have happened had the story continued? Like, let's say if the universe were created and then what do you think he would have done?
0: Interesting.
1: Well, I mean, I would be dishonest if I didn't tell you that I was imagining uh, follow-on stories. Um, There's, there's a moment towards the end after uh, Arlo runs away um, where sort of Marlene lingers in the shot kind of, She does this, she performs this little defiant pirouette just by herself in the hallway. Um, She's really the character for the book that the story might eventually become. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure that Arlo is, Arlo is culpable um, for taking the whole like Hadron Collider thing for a giant joyride. And I'm sure he's, you know, he may do time for that or at least they're going to send him away. but this this, this sort of notion of of a multiverse that can be modeled with like bubble-like behavior really appealed to me. Um, You know, I have kids, you know, we've used soap bubbles before. I see all these different behaviors. Um, I'm I'm getting to a a sort of a sequel story where, um, you know, two bubbles are in contact and the wall between them just goes away. That's sort of the notion I was looking for. Like, if you can take this, because the, the book has even pictures of this this sort of like this teardrop effect and the um, the wormhole between the the, the nascent um, daughter universe and, and the the I'm 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 not remembering all the words the 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 uh, the, the pure vacuum of the parent universe and. Mm-hmm. and so, so it describes these things and it, it actually ha- has diagrams of them. And it, it's, 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 it's quite an elaborate analogy. And I just wanted to see how far we could push that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, what if the sort of the wall between this universe and some other universe have, you know, just disappeared one day, what would be the result? So um, that that's the bigger thing I'm aiming for eventually. Yeah. Oh, um, oh,
0: sorry. So before, before I uh, actually finished reading the, the last page of the story, uh, this is interesting. So I, I finally understood what had happened, but I kind of did a double take. You know what sometimes you didn't fully understand what happened at the end? Mm-hmm. Okay. So initially what I thought happened was he ended up destroying his own universe and creating another universe, right? And 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 letting it, you know, uh, pulling the trigger in that sense. Uh, I'm glad that he didn't, of course, right? But I, I would I was just wondering, yeah, what would have happened if he did something like that? Like he wanted a new, like I thought he had an impulse that. He wanted to have some sort of a new life, or that the life that he was leading and living was not worth living anymore. That that's how I took that at first. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would have been interesting if that happened, but it's. Uh, I'm happy that it didn't. And there's sort of more of a consequence. He's like, "Oh no, what have I just done?"
2: Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah,
0: yeah. And, and sorry, what were we gonna say?
2: Wow,
0: I don't know if I remember.
2: Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, there, there was a question. About Arlo and the creation of the oh yeah so why do you why do you think that um, he didn't really take the considerations of the ethics committee as seriously as he should have?
1: Uh, I I just don't think he has this. Well, on the one hand, he doesn't have the spare cycles to do that. He's so involved in the technical side of it. Um, but on the other hand. I, you know, he, he may, in fact, be a practitioner of this many worlds hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, maybe, you know, I, I might have leaned into that more, you know, if if I'd had the story to edit a, another time, just mm-hmm. sort of make clear his ethical disregard for the whole thing that he's doing. Right. Um, but on the other hand, he knows a priori that, you know, he's only going to get one glimpse as it happens, and then it's going to be gone. Mm-hmm. Like, he's never going to know if if intelligent life happens there, he's only going to know, you know, what the shape of the cosmic background radiation is, maybe what the fine structure constant is like, you know, these half a dozen different physics variables that really determine the shape of our universe and how it evolves. Um, that's all he gets like one little glimpse of and that's it. So that, it makes it easier for him to disregard, you know, the consequences of what he's doing. Right. Your only consequences there. He's ne- no but nothing nobody from here can ever get there, and nothing from there can ever get here. So it's it's almost imaginary to him. Mm-hmm. And, and that would make
2: sense why he's not such a sympathetic character then. Because like on the one hand, obviously you can empathize and say, Well, you know, it seems like he's kind of down on himself or he doesn't really have much uh much in terms of confidence. But then on top of that, he's also pretty irresponsible and he does things that I mean, look, there are times, obviously, when you can go against the majority and you can be right, obviously, even though it doesn't happen often. But the point is that here, I mean, if an ethics committee is telling you like, hey, man, like this is probably not a good idea. Let's at least think about this and wait so you know, wait a little longer. And you completely disregard that. I mean, that's that's, that's pretty childlike. And that's sort of an issue with that person. I mean, look, what, whether or not he should be punished, I don't know. Uh, probably yes. To what extent another thing I don't necessarily know. But it is interesting that people sometimes think, well, you know what? It's like, I think I'm right or I know. I'm right, and they just make these decisions without actually kind of thinking about where they
0: can go. Right. So, uh, right. If 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 you're, let's say, you're getting feedback, yeah. Right. From especially from an ethics committee, they're they're sp- especially they um, they're they're actually like a, an authority that you should be trusting for feedback. Yeah. Right. You could be right. Sure. I'm sure there's times where uh, people have been uh, right in those kinds of situations, but um. Yeah, I understand if it was other people giving feedback, right? If it's a Twitter, let's say, right, you have to, uh, Twitter trolls, or sometimes somebody who's just not very well versed in whatever topic it is that you're you're talking about, right. and they give you feedback. Yeah, and in that sense, there's times when you can sort of disregard the feedback, and you you stay on your path, you do what you do. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's other times where it's very important to, to take on feedback and listen to Uh, what experts in your field have to tell you. Yeah, right.
2: Absolutely. And it's like when you're thinking about even feedback and we're thinking about like risks and consequences, right? It's not the same thing as sort of creating something and thinking, well, okay, this is going to fail or it's going to hurt me because I don't know, maybe ruin my reputation or something along those lines. Like this has exponential consequences for, in this case, if it's a universe, we're talking about potentially billions of people or whatever, aliens or whatever, you know, kind of you want to call these figures. So I guess, Chris, in one of our sort of final questions, right? you feel like in terms of responsibility? Actually, let me rephrase this question. What do you feel like in terms of responsibility? And in terms of uh, kind of what Arlo did, what do you want the big takeaway to be for your audience?
1: Mm, boy, um, can, I, can I answer that twice? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, on the one hand, I'm going to stand on a soapbox and say, you know, there exists this big ethics committee, you know, on, on the big wheel. And there exists all of these, um, these mechanisms to prevent people from just taking it from a joyride. You see him sort of defeat the security and turn off all, the, uh, all of the monitors and everything. Like I think doing those things isn't enough. The people who actually have their hands on the controls, the scientists and the engineers, they need to be part of the discussion about ethics. Um yeah that's you know that was true in in 1942 and it's true today like you know um I, as as a, as a as a career engineer um i really feel like there's not enough of of those discussions or that education that happens mm-hmm. in my career field um i mean you, you can go back and see you know after the first atomic bomb was burst you know there were people that came forward like Johnny von Neumann, who, who, you know, who wrote to Congress, who wrote to the president, who, you know, some of those, some of the people involved in the Manhattan Project and completely turned around their outlook and became crusaders for nuclear disarmament and for peace after that incident, you know, so, so there are lots of tangible examples right now of how ethics, you know, ethics doesn't just apply to, um, to, shouldn't be done by, by a separate group. It needs to be it needs to be sort of baked into, to the different, um, the different career paths, scientists and engineers. I'm really like, um, my wife is in the medical profession and, you know, when they, when they get their degree, they stand up and they take an oath. Like right. why is there no such oath like that for engineering or for science?
2: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, what, what was the second
1: part? The this, this second part is that I feel like, um, it's, it's not healthy for anybody to be so ensconced in their intellectual pursuits that they, they starve their, their interpersonal relationships. And especially like right now, after everybody has been isolated by the pandemic for a year, you know, it's, it's, it's been a year since I've sat down at a lunch table and talked to my coworkers, you know, it's been a year since I've gone and hugged my family in upstate New York. Um, You know, we really have, you know, you know, personal, intimate, firsthand experience of how important it is to to not be isolated from um, from the basic ground level relationships that, that that give us humanity and help us put these other ethical questions in in a proper framework.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: All right, Alan. Final questions for Chris before we go.
0: All right, uh, Chris. If we wanted to follow you, follow your work, uh, where could we find you?
1: Oh, so yeah, um, so. There's a lot of things. Um, there's a blog called Curiousful, curiousful.wordpress.com, um, infrequent, but a lot of discussion there about the process of my, my writing, um, what's going on with that, um, bigger questions about responsibilities for writers, things like that. Um, I'm on Twitter at at C. Chris Rose, um, that, that's similar, um, also, I'm a member of the Science Fiction Writers of America. You can find me there. Um, I am a member of Charm City Spec, which is a, a, a reader's, uh, a, reader's a, a set of reading events, basically, uh, quarterly. Um, in Baltimore, um, we invite people who write speculative fiction Um, to approach us and maybe come to an event and read, um, plug their work and explain what it's about. Um, We have had a year long hiatus and it's really eating me um, because I feel like there's a lot of good fellowship there. It's a good place to connect to the local writing community. Um, And also I'm a member of the Baltimore Science Fiction Society. Uh, I show up at their critique circle uh, most of the time now. Um, And that's a good place to sort of get your feet wet if you wanna be a writer. So I'm in all those places. Awesome. Awesome.
0: Uh, Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you so much. This was great.
0: Absolutely, man. We'll be in touch with you soon. Thanks. Take care. Bye,
2: Chris.
1: (laughs) Bye-bye.
0: All right. That was awesome. That was welcome. So, guys, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram, and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the bell on YouTube. Yep. And yeah, thank you so much for watching. I look forward to the next episode. See you next time.